had a passage I'd been struggling with all week, and Saturday I finally came to the conclusion it wasn't for this Sunday. <laughs> so I don't know if that means that what I have is what I should have had or what I had before was for a later time, but either way, anything else? I want to look at an account we have in two of the Gospels. I want to read it in both places. It's fairly short. You can turn with me to Mark chapter 7 to begin with. Mark chapter 7. After we read this one, we'll read it out of Matthew as well, and I'll primarily be staying in Matthew, but I wanted to read it in Mark as well, because there's a few more details that I think help make the place for where we're at in Matthew. But to begin with Mark chapter 7... And verse 24, and I want to read this account. It says, From there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman, whose little daughter had an unclean spirit, heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said unto her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said unto her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the young child in the bed, and the demon had gone. And if you flip over to Matthew chapter 15, like I said, we'll be here the remainder of the morning. Matthew chapter 15, we see the same account. Again, clear this is the same person. The perspective from which it is given is by Matthew instead of Mark. It's a little bit different, but the same story. Matthew chapter 15, beginning with verse 21. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman who was from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her. His disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she said, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. And so again, we see these two accounts of the exact same uh, occurrence that happened in the life of Christ. And I want to spend just a few minutes today unpacking this. This is uh, probably a verse that has been confusing to many, been used as uh, honestly a weapon against Christianity and against Christ from time to time, and I think unjustly so. So we'll look at it today. But to set the stage, what we see here, if you're uh, maybe flip back a chapter or two of Matthew, you get the context of where and when this is occurring. So Christ is well into the ministry that he's doing. He's traveling mainly around the Sea of Galilee. He's healing a number of people. 
And then he takes this journey up into the coast. It doesn't really say where, uh, into this region of Tyre and Sidon. Now, if you know your Jewish history, which many of you probably don't as well, and I had to look it up myself, these are two port cities. They were originally given to the Israelite people by God. But as you recall, the Israelites failed to do what God told them to do, which is to wipe out all of the Canaanites. And so these became and stayed Canaanite strongholds. Now, over the years, their relationship was sometimes good and sometimes bad. In fact, if you look in the Old Testament, we see that most of the material that was used to build the temple came from these kings um, of these areas. And so they had a somewhat cordial relationship with them on occasion, but make no doubt about it, they were um, Canaanites. They were not Hebrew people, although there were probably lots of Hebrews that lived up there at that time. And so I think it's kind of interesting that Christ would leave one area to go away. And I think we see from both accounts that he was trying to withdraw, trying to step away from the crowds that were there. And we see Christ doing this often. Maybe just as a little aside note, and I'm going to say this to myself, maybe more than the rest of you, maybe on occasion we ourselves need to just step away a little bit to be with the Lord. After all, if Christ, being a part of God, thought it necessary to withdraw, to pray, and to spend time alone with God, how much more should we? So it seems to be that he was purposely trying to withdraw from the great crowds that were no doubt coming around him, begging to be healed, and all the things that are going on. It's also interesting, again, where he chose to go. This isn't an easy journey. Just out of curiosity, I looked up a map to see how far it was, and that's roughly 40 miles, I think, from where he probably was to where he went. The problem is, it's not an easy 40 miles. In fact, even today, if you were to plot driving from one city to the next, you'd have to go like 175 miles around a couple of mountains to come back down around. So this was not just like, I'm going to walk over here for an afternoon, probably went there with a purpose. So all that's to set the stage for what we have here. He was withdrawing to a certain place and trying to be alone, probably to commune with the Lord and potentially to set up a wonderful example for us. And this woman out of seemingly nowhere, who's not Jewish, comes up crying to him. Now, if you look at that word crying, this is not just someone who probably walked up quietly sobbing, saying, Lord, help, help my daughter. No, that word actually means to shriek or to call out. So she is here screaming, begging for the Lord to help her daughter who is possessed by a demon. I've used this word before. This is like messy crying. This is loud, boo-hooing, not good-looking crying, right? Doing everything she can, probably, to get his attention. And potentially what she's doing is giving away the very fact of who it is and where he's at. Remember, he's trying to get away to withdraw from people who are crowding around him. Mark tells us he's in a house. Matthew isn't that specific. But either way, he's at a place trying to get away from people. And here she is screaming, crying out, making a scene. And it sounds like, because the disciples get annoyed, is what I, my interpretation, right? That this is going on for some time. And so she's not giving up. She didn't just go once and say, Lord, help my child. It seems like she's there repeatedly for some period of time, drawing attention not only to herself and her plight, but also to where Christ is. That's also interesting if you look at this. 
In verse 22, she says to him, O Lord, son of David. Now again, we read this and skip over it, but this is actually really important. She is identifying him as master and a rightful king of a country that she's not a part of. It's a very interesting way to do it. It would be like us maybe going up to uh, Canada or to Mexico and approaching uh, the, the king or the person in charge or the president and saying, oh, you're my president, when in fact they're not. And so it's very unusual what she's doing here. And what's interesting is he seemingly ignores her. You ever felt like God ignored you? Be honest. Ever felt like you've cried over and over again only for God to ignore what it is that you're saying? I bet if we're honest, many of us have felt that way. Maybe multiple times. Maybe you feel like that today. But despite her carrying on, despite her wailing and and screaming, he didn't say anything. And as I said, I don't know how long this went on. I'm reading slightly into this, but it seems like the disciples were a little upset by this. So he didn't answer her a word in verse 23. And the disciples came to him begging him, saying, send her away for she's crying out after us. So it seems as though she's annoying the disciples. Why didn't he heal her or why didn't he answer her prayer? I want to pause here and think about this for just a minute. As I said, all of us have probably had times that we've called out for something and haven't received seemingly what we wanted, or at least when we asked for it. And so he seems to be ignoring her and he hasn't fulfilled what she's asking for. But really, it seems almost out of character. In fact, if you go back into the uh, near the end of chapter 14, In verse 34, we see this account, right? It says, And when he had crossed over, came to uh, Gennesaret, and when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all in that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored them that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. And so here is a man, Jesus Christ, who is out to do a ministry and a work and a mission, to preach the good news, to preach about him who is healing and saving people. And all the people in this one area, all they had to do was they'd go around and get everybody they could who was sick, and they'd just go up and touch his garment, and he'd heal them. And then here seemingly, and this is not too many days later, here's this woman, only one, crying out, begging for him to do something for her, and he just ignores her. Let me ask this question. Would he have been any less God if he'd not healed her at all or not healed her daughter? Would he be any less loving if he didn't heal her daughter? Less kind, less just? We get really wrapped up, and it's what we tried to spend a couple of weeks talking about. We talked about the character traits that we know about God. And of course, Jesus Christ is God. And so we know that the same is true about him. He is no less the savior of the world, all powerful, if he did not heal the daughter. Now we would think that unfair, wouldn't we? Because we are simply mortal people and we do not understand. But we fail to remember that whether he heals this woman's daughter or not, he is still grace, he's still love, he's still mercy, he's still just 
and he is still sovereign to do as he wills and he wishes. So whether or not he does the things that we ask him to do doesn't change anything about who he is because he is those things outside of what we think he should do. And how many times do we, and then let's go further, other people we know form our opinions about God based on what we think he should do? See what a slippery slope this is? But he could have continued to ignore her, and he's still perfect. He could have denied to heal her daughter, and he would still be just, because he is God. It's easy for us to judge God based on what we think he should do. But in this case, of course, we had just have already read it, he did choose to heal the daughter. But he answers first, and he answers seemingly to his disciples, and we'll assume based on this that she could hear as well. He said this, he said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, what's going on here? I think there's a couple things that are going on here. I think to some degree there's a test. There's a test of this woman's faith. There's a test of the disciples. And there's also a message to the rest of us. We must understand what is here. This very well could be the first miracle to a Gentile. But what's a Gentile? Well, that's a, a biblical word, a Hebrew word for a non-Jewish or non-Hebrew person. So... I'm a Gentile. You're a Gentile. Sometimes in the New Testament, they're called Greeks, as in just to differentiate between the ethnically and religiously Jewish or Hebrew person and the Gentile, which is everyone who is not Jewish. And so this is important for us to understand. Now, it looks like, and again, I've only done a short amount of study on this, it looks like there have been miracles that occurred to other Gentiles that Christ was in charge of. In fact, driving the demons out of the men and sending them into the uh, herd of pigs, right? We know those were not Jews because they were <laughs> keeping pigs, so that wasn't Jewish people. But what we see here is a very clear and very important story of someone who's not Jewish, whose faith interacts with Christ to have a miracle. And this is very important. It may be the first account we have of this in Scripture. Thankfully for us, we know that Christ came not just to the Jewish race, just to the Hebrews, but to all of us. And part of how we know that, among many reasons, is this account right here. Because we see him go and we see him give his grace and his power to someone who is not a Jew, someone who is not Hebrew. John ten sixteen tells us, he says, There are other sheep not of this fold that I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice so that there will be one flock and one shepherd. You see, we are set up here for a beautiful story that Christ is teaching us even today. No matter your race, no matter your gender, no matter where you're from, no matter when you are, there is one shepherd, even though there are some different flocks sometimes. And he must go and tell the message to all of them to bring all of us in together so that at one time in the end, we will be under one shepherd together. 
Galatians 3, 7 says, If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And we also know from Romans 2, 11, that God is no respecter of persons. So you can't go to God and say, Well, I have so-and-so for my father, or I did X, or I'm a member here, or I was baptized here. None of that matters beyond your personal faith in him. He doesn't respect you for who you are. And we see that here in just a minute. So he gives her this response. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. What does she do? Does she go away mad? No. Does she start screaming even more? No. Does she try to argue? I don't really think what happens is arguing. But instead, she responds in a very appropriate way. She came and she knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. See, that's persistence, isn't it? And we know through scripture that that is something that is taught over and over again, that we should be persistent. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. So let's break that down just for a minute, because this is instructive for how we should respond as well. When we are asking for something from the Lord, when he is dealing with us over what we are doing or shouldn't be doing or whatever the situation, we should follow this example of what would otherwise be considered a pagan woman. We should always worship the Lord. Always worship the Lord. Look at what she called him. Lord, master. Always come with respect to the Lord and worship him. We think of worship as music, but worship is obedience. Worship is sacrifice that we talked about last Sunday. Worship is doing the right thing, giving proper honor and respect to the one who deserves it. And so she came to him in worship and we should come to the Lord in a worshipful attitude as well. She was persistent. I've already talked about this. He gave her an answer that might have sent any number of us away and gone, huh, oh well. But no, she stayed and not only in worship, but she persisted and she came and she bowed down before him. She was humble before the Lord. She didn't walk up and say, no, I deserve this. I am do this. This is my child and you're going to do this for me because I asked you to do it. And remember, or maybe she doesn't say remember, But we would say, remember, God, whatever I ask in your name, you'll do. She was humble. And she was faithful. She was worshipful. She was persistent. She was humble. And she was faithful. And we see that in verse 27. So I'm skipping ahead. But those are the characteristics, the way that she came. So she comes and she's bowing before him and he answered her again. And he says, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. All right. Maybe we could get through most of this until now, but this kind of just smacks us in the face. Some of it has to do with our culture today and the language that's used here. It seems explosive, even defamatory. We don't generally call people dogs unless it's not a good thing. And if you just take it at surface level, you could think, well, that's what happened here. But let's unpack it for just a minute. First of all, 
He says, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Who's the bread? He is. He is the bread of life he proclaims himself to be. So this is really heavy laden with double meanings and not necessarily hidden truths, but truths that have to be pulled out for us to understand. It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Christ is the bread of life. John 6 and 48 tells us that. He proclaims to be the bread of life. Well, who were the, who were the children? Well, those who were in need of salvation. Those are the Jews and eventually the Gentiles. We'll get there in just a minute. The dogs would probably be the non-Jews, the Gentiles. But let's, again, step back for just a minute. Trust me, as I've told you over and over again, with no real formal training in anything religious, I'm not a great scholar on this. But I can use tools like you can as well. And all you have to do is get one of those little Bibles that you can click on that tells you the Greek words, and all of a sudden you realize the depth in here. There's two different words, at least two different words for dogs in the Greek. One of them is a, kind of a, a wild dog or a mangy mutt or some dog that lives outside that isn't really owned. The other is kind of referring to like a household small dog that you would keep at your house. The one that he uses here is not the wild mangy dog that is sometimes and correctly interpreted uh, to apply to uh, an unclean person. Talking about a wild animal. The term that he's using here, the dog that he's using here, is not an insult, but more of a kind way of referring to a pet that you might keep in your house. So let me read this again with that in mind. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Maybe that's not enough to really unpack that verse. But so let us continue. This all makes sense. In verse 27, again, she wasn't offended. She didn't throw up her arms and go away. She didn't yell at him. She wasn't exasperated. She simply said, she said, yes, Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Again, persistence, worship, humility, and faith in this woman. Let me give you one more historical context. They didn't really have silverware like we might have today. And so when they ate, they also had really dirty hands, right, as you can imagine. I'll just briefly say, and you can let your imagination run wild with you, in addition to not having silverware, they didn't have toilet paper either. And so people's hands were very dirty and disgusting. It was hard to clean. There was no antiseptic like we are all using all day, every day today. So often when they would eat, they would use bread to either like dip and scoop and eat, or they might even take a piece of flat bread, right, and use, cup that in their hand, pick up what they're eating, eat out of that. And then, unlike us today, who might, you know, you really like your, your gravy where you dip the bread in at the end and it's all, you know, yummy. Well, the bread was what you just touched with your nasty, dirty hand. So they wouldn't eat that bread, not the bread they were using to eat. They would do what? They'd throw it away. Well, what do you think would come and eat that bread? The dog you had at your house. Now, again, we're not talking about the wild, mangy, dirty, nasty mutt that no one wants around. We're talking about the dog, the little tiny dog that you might keep at your house that many of us may have today. 
And so with that context in mind, let us again rethink and reread exactly what is going on here. It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. He's not calling her a dog. Let's just be very clear there. I think this is the greatest misinterpretation of this scripture that the world thinks today, that somehow Christ called this woman a dog. No, he is making a comparison as we already saw. He's already talked about lambs. He's already talked about the bread of life, which is him. And he's talking about crumbs and dogs as an example to her and to us not calling this woman a dog. And she understands this and basically says that just as the dogs who do not deserve the crumbs and do not deserve the waste still get it, so she is asking for the same today. Because it is right for me to feed my children over my dog, isn't it? I know we all love our dogs, but shake your head this way. It is right and it is just to feed my children before I feed my dog. What she's suggesting is that she gets some undeserved benefit from being around her master. And brothers and sisters... We don't deserve anything that we get from our God. Everything we receive from him, be it little tiny crumbs or be it a blessing beyond all proportion, is simply and totally undeserved. He gives it to us because he wants to. He gives it to us because it's excess. And just a few crumbs from the master is totally worth it. Just as we see in Psalms 84, I would rather be a gatekeeper in the house of the Lord than to live in the tents of the wicked. I'd rather to have one day in his courts than a thousand elsewhere. Just the tiniest bit of God that I could possibly receive unmerited without me doing anything undeserving is better than anything else that I could possibly get. And this woman knew that. This is the discussion that they're having. And he's saying, I am here on a mission to the lost sheep of Israel. And she's saying, Lord, I know that, but at least give me whatever you have that's left over. And he identifies this as great faith. Oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. Notice in here that his power and his mercy and his love and his grace and everything that is God meets with her faith and a miracle happens. If you don't remember, you can go back and listen to the sermon entitled Collaborating with Christ. And we talk about every time over and over again when we see miracles and things happen in Scripture, there's faith and there's God working But that again, our faith isn't what gets that. Our faith is necessary, but it's the power of God to change lives. I don't deserve it. I don't earn it. It is simply my faith working with his power. Christ rarely does anything to us. He almost always does something with us. So the question is, where is your faith? Now her daughter was healed because she had faith and because he had power. 
And so this is a beautiful illustration of what happens when we approach God in the right way. When we come to him and his love and faith and persistence and worship and humility. It's a beautiful example, in all honesty, once again, of the amazing relationship that our Lord and Savior, the example of all examples that we ought to live by, had toward women. And women, you can ignore me when I say this, but if you think you have it bad today, imagine living then. Like, not much further up in the dogs that I just got done talking about. And that's the way it was. And look at what Jesus Christ models for us. That you have value, that you are important, that God came to rescue you, not just the men. That you could come before an almighty God and fall on your knees and beg for something that he would listen to what you're saying. Do you think women were allowed into the courts and judgment, whether it be like an actual court of law or into the temple in certain areas at that time? Absolutely not. And Jesus Christ, the example of all of us, and men, listen, the example for us was to be kind and affectionate and compassionate toward women, to value them, to love them, to support them, to do things for them, to take care of them. So far from many people's interpretation that here's an example of Christ calling this woman a dog, look at the love and compassion that he had for her. Hmm. This is also an important example for us of salvation to the Gentiles. This is an example of where Jesus Christ himself is indicating that he didn't just come for the Jews, but he came for all. And it's also an important example for us that we can have salvation today. The keys, call them keys, I probably shouldn't say that. The things that she did are still true for us today. Worship, humility, faith, and persistence. And so when we think about salvation, these things still apply. We must approach God and worship with persistence with humility, and with faith, knowing that we don't deserve forgiveness any more than the dog deserves the bread. But knowing in faith, and asking in humility, and begging in forgiveness, and worshiping regardless, do we come before an almighty God and say, Lord, I don't deserve this, but I want it and I need it, and you're the only one who can give it to me. That's salvation. That's the point when we come before the Lord, realizing the state that we're in, and we come before him and say, Lord, I know that I'm worth less than anything, but I know that you give and I need. And for those of us who have experienced salvation, those of us who have become new creatures, who have received the forgiveness that we all need and we all seek, we become children. We become God's children. So we move from being the dog who's just looking for the scraps of the master's table to now being the child of the living God. 1 John 3 and 2, we are now the children of God. So look at the change that happens. We go from being the dog begging for scraps, knowing we don't deserve anything, 
to being the actual child of God. That should change everything for us. It should change absolutely everything. And because of that, we know that we can come to him with boldness, the scripture says. First John as well, 5.14. And this is the boldness which we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So brothers and sisters, if you have come to know God, if you have been saved from your sin and you have been declared to be righteous and you are one of his children, then you can come to him as this woman did, boldly asking for anything that he desires us to have. How often do we go to him non-boldly? How often do we forget our place? Now, just because we understand that we're children doesn't change our humility, doesn't change our persistence, doesn't change our faith, and doesn't change our worship. But I'm afraid that many, many times, many of us come to him acting like we're still unsaved, unregenerate people. And we fail to forget that he is our father. And we can come to him boldly. Persistence. He tells us to always pray to never lose heart. Is there anything you've given up on? Is there any one you've given up on? Whether purposefully or not. Those of us who are his children should come with boldness and we should come with persistence. The scripture tells us to. Did he get annoyed at her? No. The disciples did, didn't they? Probably. Because they're just like you and me. God will not be annoyed when you come to him and ask him to help you or to help someone else. Or you come to him with a prayer boldly before him. When you come in humility and faith. Speaking of faith, Mark 11 says, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Lastly, humility. James 4.10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. And so we have here a tremendous lesson that has been twisted and turned and misinterpreted and misunderstood by thousands of people for a thousand or more years. And when we truly look and understand the context, when we understand what's going on here, when we understand the compassion that Christ had, when we understand this woman's position who came to him in a worshipful, persistent, humility, and faithful way, we see a change in a saved life. And those of us who have experienced this should continue knowing that as his children, we can come to him with boldness. We can go to him persistently and with faith and humility, asking what it is that we want. Now, I'll ask here, or I'll mention here, you can ask and ask amiss because your heart is not right. So I can ask all I want to to be a millionaire or something like that, but if it's not for the right reason and I'm asking wrongly, that's a whole other matter. But I think all too often, those of us who have faith come to him meekly. You might ask him once. He doesn't answer, so we shrug and walk away. That's not what this story's about. This story is about coming boldly before the throne of God, worshiping him with humility, 
bringing your requests, laying them at his feet, knowing that you are his child and he wants to do good things for you. And if you are not his child, the same thing applies. Come before him, lay yourself at his feet, acknowledging that the only thing you deserve is whatever he desires to give you and beg that he would give you forgiveness and life everlasting.